Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. It's not uncommon to be doing one thing in your career and then discover you want to be doing something completely different. It's a big swooping career curve that can be both scary and exciting. It's also exactly the experience of our guest today. Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are. I'm your host, Beth Davies. Today, we're joined by Hydra Mendoza, who has held top-level positions in education, including Deputy Chancellor in the New York City Department of Education and President of the San Francisco School Board. She didn't start her career in education, but rather discovered this passion. Hold on, wait a minute. Hydra, you're sitting right here. Why don't I let you tell this story? I'm really happy to have you here with me. Great. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start by getting to know you and starting all the way back with growing up. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your family and where you grew up. Sure. So my father was in the military for the for 28 years, and that's actually how we got to the United States. He uh, grew up in in the Philippines with my mom. In 1965, my dad was stationed in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and I was born there. And then five years later, my brother was born in Honolulu, Hawaii. And so we spent our entire childhood traveling all over the country. So we lived in Guam and in Germany and in Texas. Uh, and and just had this really wonderful life of traveling around and being amongst a lot of other army brats, and um, and had three older sisters that were born and raised in the Philippines, and so we had kind of our the immigrant side of our family, and then my brother and I who were born in the states who were raised just very differently. So it was interesting when all five of us were at home, having a dynamic of those who lived in the Philippines and grew up, you know, poor. And in a village, um, and then and then those of us who had the privilege of being born in the states and having, you know, all the luxuries that we had. When you think about just even that experience, and think mm-hmm. about where your career is today, mm-hmm. do you make any connection to the career you've built and that early start? Sure, I, I think part of the way I grew up because we traveled all the time. We had to make new friends wherever we went. We had to adjust, um, you know, new home, new friends, new school. All of those things helped me to be a lot more outgoing. What about from a career messages as mm-hmm. you were growing up? Were you given any messages from either of your parents about what you could or should be mm-hmm. um, as you became a professional? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my father and I are very close. Uh, he was he was always he's always been my hero. Um, but you know, even while he was serving in the military, he always had an extra job or two. So in the evening, he would uh, clean offices, or he would be a bouncer at the local dance club that the GIs all went to. <laughs> so he always had something on the side, and um, it was interesting to 
hear him talk about, uh, you know, just as an immigrant wanting to be able to take advantage of every opportunity that he had and to do as much as he could for his family. You know, that's where my work ethic came from. I think watching him and wanting to use every hour of my day is something that I, that I do now. Um, I don't have side hustles like he had because mostly the jobs that I've had have just all been all time consuming, but he, everything he did, whether he was, you know, cleaning offices, um, or doing HR, which is the work that he did, uh, in the military, he, he did it with perfection. He always wanted to make sure he was making connections. If people were still at the office when he was cleaning, he wouldn't just come and, you know, empty garbages. He would sit and chat with them for a little while. Um, whenever I went with him, he paid me. You know, I got a dollar for every visit that I went to, and so, um, and but I also had to do my share of work, and and I think those are the kinds of things that started me off um, in in terms of thinking of career. And I mean, we would do things like, you know, I was always the one that would, uh, whenever we had fundraisers, I would be the one that would bring the most money because I, you know, had the work ethic in me already at a very young age. And, you know, my first job was I had my own um, paper route in the fifth grade. And on weekends when the papers were a lot larger, I would pay a couple of my friends to come and, and throw the papers with me so that I would. So I had a little bit of an enterprise going on if I were right. during the week. I would do it myself. And then on weekends, I'd share the love and, you know, and pay my friends. And we got to do it as a team. And, um, you know, it was like those little things that that kind of send big messages, send big messages. Yeah, there's another little message in there that was a big message where you said that you would do some work for him and he would pay you mm-hmm. or you would recruit some others to help you and you would pay them. So early on too, you were getting a message that said there, there is an exchange that goes here, Mm -hmm. right. And that place of value on the work that you're, that you're doing. Yeah. And it gave me an incentive to think about the kinds of things that I wanted to, like, what was I saving my money for? Or what were the kinds of things that I could now do that I wouldn't have been able to do before? And then, you know, would make me want to ask for more shifts with my dad, or can I, can we go do something else? Um, so that was always right. Really so fun. creating even that motivation. Yeah. So then as you're finishing up high school, mm-hmm. what were you thinking you were going to do or be when you grew up and how did that influence what you studied in school? Yeah. So, you know, this, this whole moving around thing was, was very intense in high school because I went to four different high schools. Um, Because we were moving around quite a bit. So I started in Germany, and then I ended in San Francisco. And that's actually how I landed in San Francisco and have spent, you know, the last 37 years there. My senior year of high school, I was overcredited because I had been to so many other high schools. And um, so I only had to take two classes. And so I was done at 11 uh, at Washington High School. And so I could take... You were the envy of every other high school student. (laughs) Yeah, they're like, what do you mean you get to leave now? Um, so I, I took more credit and, and, uh, but it was work experience. So I got more credit, um, to go take a job. And what was the job that you and took? And so I, um, I began as an assistant to a law firm. And so I would take documents from this law firm and bring them down to city hall to get filed with the assessor's office. Cause we were doing real estate law. And then as that career started, or or that job, because I was looking at it as just a job at that time, um, started to 
add more um, responsibility, I got a lot more engaged in this idea of, of you know, maybe law is is the path that I want to go down. But I was also an athlete as in, in my high school years. So I also was very engaged in sports. And so, and I loved sports. And that was the thing my dad and I would always do. We'd go to boxing matches or football games or like I was, I was his pal in that regard. And so the commentating that we would do in these, at these games that we were at also had me want to go into journalism or do some kind of reporting. So that was always the question, you know, do I want to pursue a, a career in journalism or is law something that I think I could be really good at? And then ended up going into business. <laughs> so how did you make that decision? While I was in school, I worked the whole time. So from high school, uh, you know, from there and, and then going to Cal and all of that was done while I was working for this law firm. They helped me pay for college. And so all of that I learned and thought about in terms of what do I, what am I going to, I'm not going to stay here for the rest of my life, or, or maybe I am, I don't know. Um, but what can I glean from this job that translates into my academics? And then what can I do academically that would help me with this job? Yeah, so you so were really was, seeing this synergy between the two of them. Exactly. It's interesting to see now how my experiences working and going to school has influenced the way I talk to my own kids about making decisions to do one or the other because they're not trying to do both. And so I've said to them, if you do both, I would, it would make me a lot more comfortable because then I know that you're not just pursuing this one thing. And I think that was really helpful for me to make some decisions around what to do next. And then I got um, engaged. And so my... Uh, so while you were still in college, you While I was still in school and while I was still working for the law firm, I had gotten engaged and... Um, and then that brought me to Boston. So I was living in Boston with um, my boyfriend at the time, my fiance at the time, um, who had matched at, at Mass General. Um, he was doing an anesthesiology uh, internship and residency. And, um, and so I took my skills from the jobs, the, the seven-year job that I had and worked for um, a real estate company in Boston. And they had me doing loan workouts. And what's was, a loan workout? So it's when you talk with somebody about they're about to go into foreclosure or they're about to go into default and you want to talk with them about all of their encumbrances, all of the, all of their debt. And so how do we minimize their debt so they can save their house or save their car or whatever it is that somebody's coming after them for? So at this point, as you're essentially giving people advice about their life and helping them work through challenges, you're in your early twenties, mm -hmm. if I'm figuring this out right how did you establish credibility in that type of a, of a situation? Because I would imagine it's common that people step into jobs that feel bigger than them or oh, almost yeah. feel like somebody should be older than they are in that role. Um, so how did you... Yeah, how did you establish credibility? Yeah, and that one was really tough for me because I, I can remember situations where, um, you know, I was responsible for people. I, I was managing a small team, and when they came to me about situations that, you know, I had no experience in, I hadn't, it hadn't happened to me myself, I, what, I didn't talk this through with anyone else, and they would come to me about these situations, um, and I didn't really know how to come up with a professional answer. And so my responses were oftentimes more personal. And I think that that's how I established the credibility. But oftentimes, um, you know, I, when I'm trying to sort out a situation, it, it can't, 
I don't, I try to not approach it from a, well, what am I going to do about this? It's a, well, what do you think we should do about this? Or what's been your experience? How do we problem solve and find a solution? Because everybody brings a different perspective to the table. And I think that's what I learned early on is that I only bring so much to the solution and other people have had different experiences that can add to the solution that we're trying to find. And so, um, so that was, that's been kind of my approach. And that's- so it sounds like it's a combination of I'm going to be authentic in recognizing my own limitations, and then I'm going to be inclusive in asking you and involving you and together problem solve this. Exactly. Um, and so that's kind of, my, that's been my approach in every position that I've been in. Interesting. Uh, now you didn't follow. end up staying in real estate or in even this, this loan part. Yeah. Um, so tell me, tell me what happened. Why, why didn't you, and how did you make a move out? So, um, I, I got a broken heart and decided to move back. So my fiance and I, um, decided that, you know what, this, this, West Coast, East Coast thing is really different, and it's it's really been a strain on our relationship. You're 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 here for the long haul because you know he was doing his internship and residency. This was he was going to be here for six years, and I just could not see myself there for six years. So I came back home. I came back to San Francisco, and you know did a few odd and end things um, until you know I really wanted to think about what I wanted to do. And there was a group of friends that I'd worked with in the industry that wanted to start their own company, so I became part of that um, for a couple of years. So we started our own. Um, foreclosure company, and we were doing all of this work. And then, um, you know, a few years later, I, I met um, someone else who I ended up marrying and then having kids, and then took some time off. I had the, the luxury of, of being home with my kids for five years. I'd love to ask you about that for a moment. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of people who are afraid to take time off, right? right? They're afraid of the gap that that's going to create in their resume. Yeah. Um, Knowing that you're as driven as you are and have the work ethic that you do from your father, how did you process through that and make yourself okay with the idea of taking that time off? Yeah, so that was that was a really tricky. I mean, it was um, early in our marriage too. I mean, we weren't making a lot of money, and this idea of not having two incomes was always heavy. Um, but then this idea of, of being able to spend time with, um, with my first, and then, and then as my, our son followed two years later, and to be able to be home for this stretch was also such a, a privilege and probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever had. And I just learned a lot in terms of being organized, doing event planning, you know, kind of uh, the way in which I started to talk to my children was... With, with children, you had to really think about where they were coming from, what knowledge they, yeah. they already had, and then how you presented to them. And that was yet another skill set that I, I used in my, you know, executive roles that I've, that I've played. It's also a reminder that everybody that we interact with, you know, has their own learning style and their own work style. And so how do I adapt to that as a leader? Um, so that, that part was really interesting. And I think as a household, there was a little bit of the, well, you know, so these are now your responsibilities. Um, and then I'll go and, you know, and make the money, but these, these are now all your new responsibilities. 
And I think that was a little bit harder for me to adjust to because these were more kind of traditional roles that people expected, you know, gender specific, gender specific, um, or, you know, or I would, it's funny, I, there would be times when I would have my daughter in the playground and, and I was spoken, you know, like they would come up and say, oh, you know, who do you work for? You know, so then I was the the nanny as if I were the nanny because, you know, like, you know, no woman would be taking time off to take care of their child and be at the playground with them, you know, like, why would you do that? Um, so there was a lot of questioning my own, you know, self-worth and the confidence that I had built over the years and what was I going to do with that. What I love that you did do is recognize the skills that you were building. And uh, I think a lot of people look at that time off as almost like not wasted years because there is the family time, but as if there's no skill building. And so I really appreciate (laughs) your calling out that no, there still is a lot of growth and skills that can translate into work, mm-hmm. even when you're doing work that doesn't earn a paycheck. Right. I mean, simple things like budgeting, you know, like we never had to budget before, but now we have one income. So now we have to budget differently. And, um, but this is also where I transitioned into education. I was going to say, so at some point you <laughs> had to decide, all right, it's time for me to go back to work. And I'd love to know about that transition because, especially because it does take you into education. Yeah. So what happened? So it actually started when my daughter was really young. I mean, here I was a young mother. Nobody teaches you this stuff and had no idea like what approach I should take. And I really wanted to do a good job as a mom. And since I had the privilege of being home, I wanted to make the most of it. And so, um, I had, I saw a flyer or something at city college to, on a brain development class, a child development class. And it was, it was about specifically about the brain. I said, you know what? I, I really, I'm going to go take this class because it seems fascinating. And I want to be able to understand, you know, instead of just looking through the, the, you know, the first 10 year book of, you know, the Dr. Spock or whatever it was at the time, um, like what? What am I? What, what are the other things I should be thinking about? How how do I help make her more cognitive and more linguistic and more you know like all of these things? And so the first place to start would be with brain development. So I took this amazing class with Nina Mogar. She was the professor, and and like her class had a waiting list. She apparently was the top star over at City College, um, and it was an evening class, so I could I could go and do this. And loved it, just devoured the information, and I wanted to know more. So I started just kind of not really consciously, but just taking more of her classes and other classes. And, you know, and here now I'm on child two, and I've got 70 units of early childhood education (laughs) under my belt. So you weren't necessarily working for any, taking this with the idea of getting a degree or anything like that. You were purely just doing this out of out of interest. Interest, total interest. Another space that I'd never dreamed of, um, learning so much and then watching it in action because I've got these two kids in front of me that are doing all these things that I'm reading about and then I'm testing some of my theories on them. And, And it's just, it's fascinating. And then my youngest starts to go to preschool. So we, we choose a cooperative nursery school because now we've, as the parents, have this opportunity to take a slot to teach. So this is how I started teaching preschool. 
was through her cooperative. And because I was certified and had um, my credentials, I could sub for the director. So whenever she was out, I had the opportunity to run the school. When did you actually say, wait a moment, this is more than for me, just about my parental contribution and this is now actually my next career curve. Yeah. So that actually, and in many of the roles that I've played, wasn't something that I recognized and pursued. It was something that someone else recognized and asked me. Tell me more about that. So when my daughter went to, to public schools in San Francisco, we were on a wait list, even though there were spots at the school, which made no sense to me. So already I was kind of annoyed that this was happening and, you know, how do parents go through this and this doesn't make any sense. And um, so I started making a little noise around that, just asking questions. And so before I was even, um, before my daughter was accepted to the school that we ended up at, these parents had heard that I was inquiring because they had the same concerns. So they had said, you know, you should join the PTA. And and so before we were even at the school, we were already participating in a PTA that we didn't even know our kid was going to go to, <laughs> which was a little wacky. But um, but it was a great group of, of families to be around and to really start thinking about some of the challenges and how do we solve for them. I, you know, I'm not a complainer. I don't go down and say, you know, you haven't finished this or you didn't do that without coming with some kind of a solution. Um, and so... Which is actually probably why they turn to you to say, will you get involved with this? Because... Here's somebody who's going to help us solve, not just somebody who's going to complain. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was, and we were in a school that was, um, you know, it was a, it, it used to be a school that was a, what was considered a low performing school. It had a, a, a high dominance of, of um, native speakers. So there wasn't a large um, English population there. It wasn't very diverse in terms of socioeconomics. Um, so coming into a school like that, and it was a Spanish immersion program, a new Spanish immersion program, and having been raised with sisters who spoke my parents' home language, and my brother and I did not, it was really important for our kids to have their home language, which was Spanish. Their father is Puerto Rican and Italian, and, um, and so Spanish was a, a language that was offered, and we thought it was really important for them to be able to to have their home language. So that's how we ended up at that school. So fast forward a little bit, I served on the PTA, I was the co-chair of the school site council, and then I was one of the first founding members of an organization called Parents for Public Schools. And that was really taking families and bringing them back into the public school system because we were really losing families from the public school system. And so we were recruiting families into the public school system. So again, utilizing my, my skill set of um, you know, meeting and greeting and, and the outgoingness, relationship you know, building, relationship building, organizing, you know, bringing people together to both celebrate and to problem solve. So all of those things kind of came to me in this new role as a, as a parent leader, um, in my kid's school. And then, the when we this organization that we started parents for public schools the executive director ended up going to go work for the school district so people came to me and said you know you should run parents for public schools and and then you know this is how it became that oh wow so this is that time when i can actually go back to work cuz i'm still you know raising two young kids and I'm volunteering at the school, but I'm not working full time anywhere. I'm working, but, but not in a, yeah, but in, much in of the stuff you were role. doing wasn't, wasn't for 
pay. Right. It was, it was for all the kids in that school. Um, so then I, so I took on this role and, um, and then started to get recognized by the school district itself. So they see this new parent leader who's coming, wants to be a critical friend, but doesn't want to, you know, rubber stamp everything that the school district is doing. And again, coming up with solutions. So Arlene Ackerman, who was the um, superintendent at the time, um, asked me to be part of her cabinet, her parent cabinet. So I started to sit on this. So I went from, you know, PTA to school site council to, um, you know, to this uh, larger policy body to make, to help um, the superintendent think about ways to be, to, to improve the public school system. So now I'm learning about policy, which was not in my bailiwick at all. So now I'm learning how to bring issues to the table, think about how it fits into the system, looking for the resources in order to implement, and then translating that into policy so that the school district can start doing some things that actually benefit the parents. So this was the parent voice now that was starting to show up in our school district, which, is, which had been muted for a very long time. So that was an exciting moment because now I'm, you know, talking to all the muckety-mucks who are making these decisions and sharing with them what what I'm hearing on the ground. What I hear in your story so far (laughs) is a lot of your recognizing that from your life experiences, you were acquiring skills and perspective that had value to others and that you weren't then shy about bringing that to the table and adding impact and value through it. So... Mm -hmm. Did you have any moments where you doubted yourself because this wasn't what you had studied? Oh, yeah, every day. And how did you manage through that? Um, I think I realized that as kind of the default representative of the entire school or this parent body or these students that were, you know, being thwarted from having something at their school site. Yeah. That if it wasn't, if I'm standing there in front of a leader and I'm not telling them what it is that we need, then who is telling them? So frankly, if you'd gone back to school and gotten more of a formal education in this, you almost would be then having the same perspective that they have. Exactly. As opposed to saying, wait, I've got a unique perspective and I'm going to keep sticking with that, and that's my strength. Exactly. And I think the connection to the community has always been my strength. So no matter what role I've gone into, um, it, it's the community perspective is the one that people would come to and say, what are you hearing? What do you know? And when I was running Parents for Public Schools, we had a, we had a big general meeting, and it was right around the time um, of elections. And so there was this group of, of um, mayoral candidates that were coming through and making their stops at various places. And so Gavin Newsom was was our, our guest at our annual meeting, and he came and talked about his perspective on education. And he was a candidate for mayor at the time. He was a time. candidate for mayor at the time, young, not married, without any kids. And so coming into our meeting was really fascinating for him because this was a whole new group of people he'd never interacted with. They were throwing things at him that he couldn't really respond to. And so he he pulled me out of the meeting afterwards, and he just was like, can you give me the lowdown on what just happened? So I had no idea. I had no connection to him. I had no idea who he was. He was one of you know many candidates that had been coming through. But he was the only one that stopped me and said, 
help me understand what's happening here. Who are all these people? Like I've never seen them, which reminded me that, you know, when you're, when you surround yourself with the same people, you're going to get the same results and you're not really going to listen, you know, get the perspectives that I've been talking about. Um, so we, that was kind of the, our, our first encounter. And then fast forward a, a couple of months later, he wins. Um, he's now the mayor of San Francisco, and early into his administration, he starts to bring in advisors. He wanted a few community organizers on his team. So there were several of us that were now in, in an administration and sitting in this place of power with this ability to like help influence policy. And so it was it was really cool to be in this place. And in this kind of advisory role to him. Was that actually a paid position then at this point? It was. And so I so was... So now you're actually working in city government. Yes. So now I'm working in city government. I was interviewed by the chief of staff and the deputy chief of staff. I had no idea who these folks were. And so I, I didn't come in with any kind of a relationship or anything. And it was funny because one of them was going through the process of, of entering the school system. And so I was able to kind of lay it all out because I had just helped hundreds of parents navigate the school system. And so I think, you know, he was very impressed with this idea of, oh my gosh, you know, you just answered all these questions that I've been asking and nobody's been able to answer them for me. And so what if, you know, that's the role that the mayor's office had is, you know, like we were now answering questions that people couldn't get out of anywhere else. Um, and so it was such a privilege to be asked to come on onto the administration because it certainly was not where I imagined myself being. You seem to be, and please correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but you seem to be very comfortable talking truth to power. Yeah. Where does that come from? You know, it's interesting. I think if you're not speaking truth to power, you will get called out very quickly. Like you see that in the, you see that with people that come into our communities. You see that when we're, when you're organizing to get some policies that are done. If those types of things are not truth to power and you're making stuff up or your values are skewed or you're not sticking to what really means a lot to you, it shows. And I think this is where, you know, that, going into elected office was also something that I kind of stumbled into was not my plan had never run for office except for fifth grade when I ran for fire marshal but it was the mayor at the time who said um, oh by the way we need somebody on the inside we need somebody who's going to be if we're going to partner with the school district we need somebody who's going to be telling us what's happening and not waiting until they're in a hole or or there's a problem we want to be proactive and we want to be able to partner with them and i said that's a great idea you should definitely get somebody to run for school board and he said no no i'm talking about you and i you know I, there was just no way i was like you're crazy there's no way i'm running for office in san francisco and it's a citywide race there is no way right so not only had you not seen yourself in policy and then you hadn't seen yourself in government as an advisor to a mayor now it's talking about no we actually want you in government as an elected official correct and so you did decide to run um decide i think is a strong word <laughs> or maybe saying i decided cuz it was not my decision as the way that I approached it. This was just not something that I really wanted to do. But so then why did you do it? 
There were people that really believed in me. Most of my career moves haven't been because of things that I've thought about and I want to go do that and I'm going to go figure out how to get there. They've all been um, because somebody has seen something in me and has said, we're going to get behind you, we're going to support you, and this is going to be great and you're going to be great at it. And which is not how I view myself. And so, you know, the mayor said, this is, I'm, I'll, I'll back you. We will have everybody help you do this. We know that you're new at this, but you're genuine, you're authentic. You know, like there was a very balanced um, reputation that I had and that I was a problem solver and not one that was going to throw people under the bus in order to get whatever it was that we needed to get. Yeah. So the entire embodiment of who you now were. Yeah. Um, was unique and exactly what he wanted and the city needed. Exactly. So there were 16 candidates um, for three seats, and I finished second. So three women of color won, and it was, it, you know, and we just hit the ground running, and it was, it was really, yeah, really congratulations. dynamic. And then, um, and then the, the following mayor, when, when Gavin moved on to become lieutenant governor, the new mayor that came in kept me on as his advisor. So we ha- and we had some great momentum because we were building a partnership with the school district. Here in New York, it's mayoral control. We didn't, ha- we didn't have mayoral control in, in San Francisco. So we had to work side by side with the school district because we couldn't take over them. And they had an independent board, which means they didn't really have to listen to us either. So what were we bringing to the table? And it was the services and supports that our families needed that we as a city could provide that the school district had no jurisdiction over. So it was an interesting relationship. So here I was as a policymaker on the school board and then a policymaker on the city side. That was my day job. So there was always this question about conflict of interest um, that I had to get a letter from the the, um, city attorney to be able to do this. But I always looked at it as a complement of interest and not a conflict of interest. And so whether it was, you know, paying teachers more, building teacher housing, increasing the, the language acquisition pool, whatever it was, it was going to benefit both the city and the school district. Yeah, I see it. You're using your relationship skills and your problem-solving skills to say that the best solutions lie in bringing together both what the city has and what the school board coming from the state then has. Exactly. And how long did you stay in this type of role and doing this work of this capacity? I was in the administration for five months when Mayor Newsom asked me to run for school board. So I had these parallel tracks for the entire longevity of my term um, in the mayor's office. That's where I started and then stayed on the school board up until the untimely death of Mayor Lee. And, and that was... That was that turning point. This is one of those first times that I stopped and said, what am I going to do next? So how did you decide what to do next for yourself? Yeah, so it was it was really interesting. San Francisco has been my homes and, and my home, and I really wanted to stay in the city somewhere. One of the things that I'd been able to build over the course of time were some really strong relationships with uh, philanthropy. So we were, you know, I was raising a millions of dollars for the school district, and so um, I talked to one of the department heads and said, "This is what I can bring to the table. You already give out seventy five million dollars in grants to." Uh, community-based organizations across the city. 
I want to build the relationships for you with philanthropy to double what you've got, or at least to leverage what you've got so that our CBOs are a lot more effective because now they're getting a lot more money, a lot more support, and we're streamlining what it is that's important to us. We're, we're lining up our priorities so you don't have money all over the place. And so that's what we were, that, that was the job I was going to go to. I was going to be a, strate- a director of strategic partnerships for the city and build those relationships until I got a call from the chancellor here in New York. Oh, so you had designed that job, but never stepped into it. And so what appealed to you when you got the call from the chancellor of New York? It was a friend who I, you know, I was his boss for upwards of seven years. So and somebody from the San Francisco schools. Correct. He was, the, he was the superintendent at the time. So when he called, it was a friend. Hey, I'm, I'm in New York now. I'm uh, reorganizing the entire DOE. And there's some, some areas that I want to uh, build out. And I'm wondering if you could help me with the, with, the, uh, with the JD. So he wanted me... So the job, just the job description, thinking, using you as a thinking partner for the Department of Education. Exactly. Okay, just help me think this through. Yeah. So he sends me the job description. I look at it and I'm like, well, it was a communications and public affairs position. And I said, so um, what do you want to do? He's like, well, we really need to connect with the community. We need to get more information out. We need to do this, this, and that. And we want to empower families. We want to build partnerships. I'm like, okay, but this is communications and public affairs. All those things you just described does not get you what you want. Does not get you what you want. So I revamped the JD for him and said, this is, you know, like, I think this is really what you're looking for. And sent it back and called me shortly. And he said, Will you, would you consider this? I think this would be, you would be phenomenal in this. And so this kind of just, you know, to wrap things up, it's my role as a parent, as a communicator, as a teacher, as an elected, as an advisor, uh, you know, having dealt with, with philanthropy and having dealt with um, electeds, you know, being able to create policy, be able to implement those were all the things he was looking for. So I was the unicorn because all of the departments that I run are press, communications, marketing, community affairs, intergovernmental affairs, translation and interpretation. Like these are all things that I'd, I'd been able to do in, in my span of my career. So coming here, I had, I had a, a little bit of a lot and so was able to take on this role with a lot of confidence. Yeah. So even though you say it's a unicorn, it actually is allowing you to be your complete you. Exactly. Very cool. Exactly. Uh, we are just about out of time, but I've got a couple fast questions that I'd love to ask you. Sure. What would you say is the smartest career move that you made, whether intentionally or accidentally? Running for school board. You know, I, I really did not believe I could do this. It hit a number of different things. It it hit my confidence level. It hit this i the idea of being able to influence policy. The impact that we've been able to make in this role has been tremendous. I think about the thousands and thousands and thousands of kids that I've been able to say, I did that policy. I I helped to move the needle on this. You know test scores are high or higher or graduation rates are higher or internships are, are, are more. 
we've raised more money because I was on the school board as a leader that was elected by the people. Yes. So you can say, I've got an, I made an impact. I've got a legacy. Yeah. If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? Um, I don't know if I would do anything over, quite frankly. Everything has led to the next thing. And I think if I, and I'm in such a great place, working in the New York City public schools is, is somewhat of a dream job. And I think if I were to do something over, I wouldn't be here. It's a wonderful answer. What's one piece of career advice that you wish you could have given to your younger self? You are just as important and relevant as anyone else at the table. That hesitation when I first started having a seat at the table, wondering if I was going to say something smart enough or wondering if I was actually going to contribute to the conversation, um, was, was always on my mind. And this idea that, that people were judging me slowed me down in terms of wanting to, to contribute and interact and engage. And so if I could rewind that a little bit, that's exactly what I'd say. You are at the table for a reason. You should absolutely be giving voice to your perspective. And last question, how do you define success? I define it by the impact that I've made on others. So for me, it's not about like who I am or what awards I've gotten or, you know, like whatever the kudos piece has been. For me, it's like, have, have I impacted a family's life? Have I seen a kid through college and now they're doing these amazing things? You know, as I meet, meet parents on a regular basis and I get invited to birthday parties or to skating competitions or like I've, I feel like I've been enveloped in, in other people's lives and that to me is what success looks like. It, it makes me feel like I've um, been adopted into something that's bigger than bigger me. Bigger yeah. and, and it's been impactful. And people feel where my heart comes from and that I'm willing to do the work that needs to happen in order to get them to where they want to be. I love that. I love that. Hydra, thank you so much. I've so enjoyed getting to know you and hearing your story and... I think yet another way that you'll have impact is by inspiring people through your story. So thank you thank very you. much. This was great. A quick epilogue. Since our interview, Hydra curved again and moved into a new role, Chief of Strategic Relationships for the Chairman and Co-CEO at Salesforce. Once she's settled in, we'll invite her back to give us a full update. And finally, I'd like to encourage you to go to careercurves.com where you can comment on this episode, read the full transcript, listen to past episodes, and find resources to help you in your career. We'd love to hear from you, so please do share your comments or drop us a message at hey at careercurves.com. As always, thanks for listening. <music>